Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers in Toronto, motorsports.com. Speaking of brothers, he of the Goodwin tribe, we have our man Graham Goodwin, a voice you've probably heard, not only on this show, we also let him out to do things like, I don't know, uh, endurance racing, commentary on the televisions, on the radios, on the soup cans, on all kinds of things. Graham Goodwin back from Sebring. You were part of Super Sebring. We had uh, a thousand million miles of WEC racing. We had not quite as many, about 12 hours or so of IMSA. I was in Texas the whole time doing my best to follow along. But nonetheless, brother, we've got you, all that you witnessed, all the questions that have come in, courtesy of our awesome listeners, participants, ranters, and ravers. And we also have Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com giving us a lot of love. So why don't I roll you in here? My cat Rocky jumps up on the back of the chair. And yet again, I've lost track how many times, Graham, during the recording of the show, he tries to put his ass in my face. But that's the kind of Saturday morning I'm having. Everyone's a critic. Uh, well, yeah, good afternoon, good afternoon here from the UK. Glorious day uh, in the south of England today. And uh, it's been glorious since we got back uh, from Sebring. Uh, yeah, it was supposed to be eight hours, but wasn't. Uh, for the WC, it was supposed to be 12 hours and was for the uh, IMSA with its Sports Car Championship. Super Sebring was indeed super. It was great to be there. It was great to see some of our friends that we've not seen for way too long. And it was great to see fans back um, out there burning the couches at the end of the race, of course, as is traditional. Uh, a packed Sebring International Raceway. And uh, we've got a packed list of questions again uh, for the weekend sports cars. Um, it's for me to select, isn't it? And I think we're going to start this week, uh, MP, with IMSA. It was the last uh, race we saw. Um, it's uh, that, that Mobile 12 Hours of Sebring presented by Advanced Auto Parts uh, this year. And I think we've got a glittering array of questions that, uh, well, we're going to fling either way, aren't we? Anything that was about being observed on site sort of naturally comes my way. Anything about the kind of background probably naturally comes your way. So wh- how do you want to do this? You want me to... Um, to you want the to first ask, question, uh, Graham Goodwin, comes in from Jose Tapia. <laughs> he says he hasn't finished the entire race, Graham. But yellow flags seem to be way less abundant. Is IMSA finally learning? So that's a great question. Is it IMSA <laughs> being less trigger-fingery, or were there less instances determining the need for a yellow it was, I think, a bit of both. It was close, to, I think I'm right, close to five hours of green running to the end of that race, which was pretty spectacular. And they did keep their fingers off the big red button in the final lap uh, with cars stopping and out of fuel. Uh, it it still produced a very good race. Uh, you know, we, we've talked on the Weekend Sports Cars before about the way in which just by nature, the, the, the rule set for uh, IMSA does kind of close up the field, particularly that happens at the Relix 24 Hours in Daytona. Uh, but we weren't lacking for great racing uh, in the, uh, the 12 Hours of Sebring. Some of the gaps towards the end of the race, naturally, because of that four and a half, five hours of green flag running, were a little further away. But uh, whatever was lacking, if you like, in terms of drama that... Uh, was necessary for race control to to, uh, to get stuck in. Uh, our good friend Earl Bamba uh, was uh, was right there and ready to actually make sure that uh, no one slept for the final uh, stint. Great stint towards the end of the race from Alex Lynn. Uh, Earl Bamba got in and turned it up to ninety gazillion. Should we and- should we apply a new nickname here, Earl the Ballerina Bamber? Because, man, Ooh. that guy was pirouetting all over the place. Uh, he was indeed. He was, uh, yeah, I think we got Earl the Ballerina Bamber going on. It, it's it, He was spectacular in every sense of the word. I think he'd, uh, he'd appreciate me saying that. There were a couple of what might be termed incidents. Um, one of his, uh, is completely his own creation. The other one. Uh, completely of his own creation, and um, and then fought back to to take the win. Uh, it was a cracking race. Um, it was an absolutely cracking race. Uh, it will be, of course, and let's not forget, and we, we can say this for the remaining 10 
um, or sorry, rather eight races in the uh, Weather Tech Sports Car Championship this season um, for DPI, and a distance record was created. Uh, that's that comes courtesy uh, not only of the roaring speed of these cars, but also, of course, that long period of green flag uh, running. I, I think there's an element here where everybody wants to see racing and not uh, a procession behind a safety car or under full course yellow. That's equally true of the FI World Insurance Championship race on the Friday uh, afternoon. Um, are they learning? I, I think that's slightly dismissive of the the attitude that is taken in race control. It is all about safety, safety of the competitors, safety of the course workers, safety for everybody. Uh, have there been some questionable calls in the fairly recent past? Well, yeah, but then neither you nor I nor our listeners are actually sitting in race control and getting either what they're seeing on their own network of TV cameras or indeed what they're hearing from the trackside observers, which is another part of this. So I'm not going to be overly critical of calls from race control. I've, I've learned to my cost uh, when a variety of um, Portuguese race directors have called me by one ear and said, or you, or words to that effect in a Portuguese accent, um, this is what actually happened. 95% of the time, there is a perspective that we've not seen or we've not heard uh, that in influences some of those calls. And whilst, you know, I know there's that throwing up of, our, uh, of hands um, and wailing around debris calls, what you don't know is what you haven't seen or whoever might have hit that debris or whether or not there's a piece of debris that might not be immediately obvious or where it is. So I think in this instance, they let them run. They let them race. We had something of a classic. It, uh, I think the right cars, for the most uh, part, won those races. Um, a great result uh, overall for Cadillac. Uh, not so great for Acura on this occasion but their days will come and everybody got out of there ultimately having felt as if we'd had a, another great 12 hours of Sebring. I don't think you saw much, if any of the race, did you MP? I liked, sadly, I was stuck into uh, the Texas IndyCar race, uh, which yes, was a delightful uh, conflict. So no, did my absolute best to uh, keep up. I don't want to say I did a wonderful job of that by any stretch, but uh, yeah, I tried to follow along, and it looked like some folks were not having fun. Starting with my French fry, which is actually the next question, Andrew Clark. Any thoughts on the theory that the Ganassi Cadillac pole-winning 01 Cadillac actually, I'm sorry, uh, the 02-winning, race-winning Cadillac from Ganassi benefited from uh, their early issues as they could push the engine less hard and do some testing while waiting for yellow uh, for yellows to put them back in the lead lap? And also mentions plus the uh, sister one could uh, test for much of the race and give info to the O two. Um, I think the latter the the, the latter uh, question is a is a good one. I'm not sure there's there was a huge amount that they could actually do to help them. I think there's plenty that's well understood, don't you? At uh, yeah, at Sebring. I mean, there there's a couple things here, and and this is <clears throat> this is one of those things that commentators say, Graham, and doesn't have really? a lot of merit uh the hey the one car had problems or in the other car the sister car can benefit because now the other car can spend the race testing and doing things that's not a thing like if if so it's the rarest of situations and even when i've seen team principals asked over the years hey the one car's having issues can it do something to benefit the other sometimes you'll get kind of a generic They'll go along with the question. Yeah, well, you know, we might be able to this, we might be able to do that. In all reality, truthfully, it's not a thing, but it keeps getting mentioned over and over. And again, this isn't limited to uh, endurance racing. It could be any other form of racing where, uh, in theory, one car can help the other. Some. Here's the thing. The drivers in the O2 car wouldn't necessarily want or like whatever setup changes might be tried on the O1. Right, it's not like the car itself would magically perform better because hey, they found on the O one, which is super laps down, that 
if you make this change, well, boom, everything gets better. Well, keep in mind there are drivers in the other car whose driving styles have to be taken into account. Now, could there be some knowledge shared back that, hey, we went up a little bit on tire pressure or down and we had these results that we have come to that knowledge before you've had a chance to try uh, that tire pressure change or whatever? Yes. Now that, but that's also a bit of a normal thing though. Uh, so just want to draw a little bit of a, dis- of a distinction here. If we're talking uh, two factory BMWs from Ray Hall, uh, the Ray Hall team, if one tries something before the other in the race and they find it to be a positive or negative, that's going to get passed down the lane uh, to the, the, the other car, the other engineers, maybe even the other drivers. But in this case, the O1 would not be turned into a, a quote, testing machine to feed the other car info because uh, these things aren't robotic. Yep. Fair dues. Uh, Lance uh, Snyder's up next. He says, okay, yep. two questions on penalties. What is IMSA going to do about drivers who spin uh, into decent spots but feel the need to roll back across traffic and put themselves in really crappy positions? Uh, is it going to make a massive uh, wreck before this situation gets taken seriously? Why don't we do that first, and I'll take the second one. I'm trying to recall which uh, which one this was actually about, Lance. Uh, forgive me, it's been a very busy, busy week. I think the first thing I'd say is I don't think anybody is willfully or willingly or consciously putting themselves into that situation. Let's blame Jordan uh, Taylor. Let's just say it was Jordan. It was Jordan Taylor. Yes, it was Jordan Taylor. Uh, but the... Uh, Stop the, doing the, that, the, Jordan. Bad, bad yeah. boy. But... I take the point that if uh, a car has found itself uh, positioned dangerously, there might reasonably be questions and, and, and consequences, particularly if they're seen or thought to have done so deliberately. There is, of course, telemetry available uh, to anybody looking to, to kind of look, look into these things. But with, with the kind of speeds we're talking about here, I struggle to come to a conclusion that has this as anything other than accidental. We've seen, um, certainly I've been at Sebring in particular, where we've seen uh, live what might be reasonably called asshattery uh, from from drivers putting themselves or finding themselves in really dreadful positions and putting other people at risk. Maybe it's a it's a fair. Uh, response to that there should be some kind of consequence to said driver and on occasion there has been uh, the, the system of points on licenses um, is in place uh, certainly an FI competi- FIA competition for that very purpose but I struggle to get to a position where anybody would put themselves or another competitor in those circumstances um, willfully and purposefully at risk and as with just about everything else when you apply a penalty that ju- does tend to be a kind of loading on the penalty determined by intent, um, as well as the actual the, the actuality of, of, of the event. So unless I'm missing one, and feel free to kind of point this out to me on either Twitter, if this is where it's come uh, from, or Facebook, or drop us a message. But I think in these instances, it is just part of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in a five-class 180 mile an hour motor race that sometimes uh, when you're pushing way beyond the limits that most of us would, would feel it are possible and it does go wrong in the microseconds that follow that another mistake can easily follow and you find yourself somewhere you weren't expecting to be. Uh, that's what I think we're probably talking about rather than somebody who willfully put themselves and their fellow competitors at risk. Uh, his second question says late in the 12 hour, a car that was 15 laps down, drop kicked a car in the lead lap. Yet the penalty game was as if they were in contention for the lead drive through for that offending driver and vehicle it says, wouldn't a stop plus hold for say a minute, uh, per lap down. They were be more appropriate. Your race is hosed. Uh, don't hose the lead lap cars by running into them. Fully agree. Lance. We're going to go to our pal, Zach Dean, and I'm going to hand this one off to you because I don't know mm-hmm. if I can answer this without uh, uh, wasting the rest of the show screaming and yelling in high-pitched and uh, yelps and, and guttural growls. Uh, this is our pal, Zach Dean, possibly the smartest person 
interacting with the show right here. Uh, he says, I heard a lot this past week about Corvette getting a bounce performance adjustment, Graham, which may have helped their win. Can you help me understand BOP and the process IMSA uses to set BOP? I understand they're okay. attempting to equalize the cars, but in what ways? Is it power, uh, turning, uh, both? Thanks so much. So he is uh, someone who, some now somewhat regular question asker on our uh, hashtag racing family shows on the IndyCar okay. side, but it looks like Zach is uh, trying to plug into IMSA as well. So tell him okay. about BOP. A BOP uh, sits across a, a range of classes, and it's going to be something we already have it with uh, DP, uh, DPI. It will, of course, be coming to the GTP class for IMSA's championship next year, uh, and has always been in place for the GTD class, which is based on the FIA's GT3 class of cars. And there are a variety of ways in which you can balance performance. That's what it's supposed to be around. It's supposed to be keeping the uh, the cars, and they are many and various and varied, uh, in a pretty equal performance window. Straight line speed is certainly one of them. Lap time uh, across the board is another. There are a variety of ways in which this is done. It's done uh, through power. You're quite right uh, to mention that. Through the weight of the car, through certain specific uh, areas of aerodynamics, including ride height. And it's a pretty well-established, well-understood process where, with the exception that we've had a couple of occasions when there's been a complete outlier, um, pretty well-understood, pretty well-respected, and in IMSA terms, pretty well um, uh, nailed in in terms of making uh, their... Well, let's look at it this way. You've got mid-engined, rear-engined, front-engined cars with... Well, a wide variety of powertrains. I want a side yeah. engine car, by the way, Graham. We don't oh, have it, enough it was, options. There was one. Was it, was it called the Nardo? Do you remember that thing? Yeah. 50s, 60s, something like that. A uh, twin pontoon thing. We also um, had the... Uh, there was something uh, indie, wasn't there? Oh, yes. The uh, the Hearst Capsule Special or whatever it was wow. called. The Smoky Eunuch put together. Yeah, the, the little sidecar. <laughs> sitting on the basically the side of the engine uh turning into turn one at indianapolis yes crazy times and nonetheless I, we digress but but the answer in terms of how they do it there's that clearly imsa and every other sanctioning body that has balance of performance has access to a huge amount of data um they're good at translating that data and they will make those determinations based um on what they're seeing in race performance from each of the cars uh there is pre-season data from testing available to them but you'll see uh these 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 cars adjusted throughout the year based on actual data with the cars in real race meetings that that accords with i know i've said this before on the weekend sports cars um that i don't generally tend to overreact to two things one is balance balance performance changes that are announced so that, that is, they are factual. It's as simple as that. Um, and neither do I tend to react terribly well or um, with a lot of copy uh, to moans and groans about balance of performance. What you'll hear and see from me is a response to the way that panned out in the races. Um, uh, before that, it's effectively politics. After that, it's basically policy. It's what, what's actually happened as a result of the decisions that have been made by the sanctioning body and as i've said repeatedly let's see how much uh add in the name of your favorite team or manufacturer care about this big race they're going into are they prepared to do their worst if you like with the the uh, the balance of performance they've been handed out to try to make a point for race three or race four or race five in the championship generally speaking you'll find those cars driven in race conditions uh, to the utmost. Not necessarily the case when we get into free practice and qualifying. And I think most of our listeners know exactly which teams and which manufacturers I'm looking at when I say that. Ooh. Uh, let's see. Let me just take a look at where we're at on the good old clockety clock here. I figure we'll do, what do you think, Graham? Half hour NIMSA and then half yeah, hour yeah. WEC to uh, close the show. All right, we've got that about works. 10 minutes left. So uh, why don't we say hello to Nicholas Kahoot? 
uh, talking about LMP3 and IMSA, Graham. So short of getting rid of LMP3 early, can anything mm-hmm. be done to avoid the awkward conflict between GTD and P3? Says, can the P3 say get a power adjustment up or down to uh, help them get clear of the GT cars on the straights? Uh, Nate uh, Detweiler, something similar. Says, if GTP takes off, IMSA decides to remove P3 from the top series, would they consider adding it to Pilot Challenge and create a mini WeatherTech series on the latter one, Nate? Uh, I have heard that that could be a thing that happens here uh, at some point in time. But uh, what do you think about the, well, did you think at Sebring, Graham, as Nicholas mm-hmm. mentions, there was a bit of a fumbling and tumbling over one another between uh, P3 and GTD beyond what you thought was right? Uh, well, let's put it this way. It's not unusual to see GT3 cars, LMP3 cars on track together. For that matter, GT3, uh, LMP3 cars and GTLM cars, as they would have been um, in IMSA. We have that in Europe with the European Le Mans series where we run GTE AM cars and LMP3. And in the Michelin Le Mans Cup, uh, since the second year of that championship, it has been LMP3s in depth and GT3s. I'll, I'll add my controversial point here, which is, I don't see it as a downside. I think this is part of what it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about uh, dealing with traffic, dealing with cars in close proximity, dealing with different performance characteristics of those cars. Of course, the additional um, wild card here is that we're talking about Pro-Am as well, which means you've got drivers of differing abilities in those cars. I think that's just part of the challenge, and I think it's part of, you know, for the watchers and the listeners, it's part of the entertainment quotient uh, of this i don't see there being a problem i think we do quite enough in terms of um, you know uh, weird word warning stratification without getting into it with some of the supporting classes and if we're talking about gtd pro and uh, lmp3 at that point you are talking highly professional drivers in those gt3 cars they should be able to deal with it simple as that yeah, there might be a few questions about when you get into the more mixed abilities a little lower down through the feeding chain with LMP3 and GTD. But take a step away from it. Try not to think about irritation and try to think about entertainment because that's what this is supposed to be as well. It's supposed to be sport. And yes, there I take your point, but it's also supposed to be entertainment. And getting two or three LMP3 cars and, well, let's say 10 or 12 GTD cars trying to deal with each other and the reasonably tight spread of performance parameters uh, around any given lap on any given Sunday, I think that's pretty entertaining. And if that means we get more cameras turning to the support classes, I think that's a good thing for the whole field. Indeed. Why don't we go to uh, another shade here uh, on P3. Alex Eichmiller says, if DPI is already faster than hypercar, and GTP should be faster than DPI. Should need to uh, park that there, Alex. And speaking with uh, IMSA's technical leaders, uh, they do not expect that to be uh, a reality. Matt Kurdock, who's uh, in charge of, of grooming the uh, next generation prototypes and whatnot, told me, and it's in a Racer Magazine feature as well, that uh, they are not anticipating GTP's going faster than dpi so just a little warning we're anticipating right we've yet to see these vehicles on track but right now uh imps is expecting the new cars to be slower than the current uh but you say how are the series going to manage and balance all this and it says i think dpi versus hypercar was a two second difference at sebring so i'm having flashbacks when imsa combined dpi and p2 it was a never-ending train wreck of complaints so the thing i can just throw in here quickly graham yeah. uh i don't have official confirmation on this if someone else does and they've printed this then i'm just behind uh but i do know that there are meant to be some group type tests going on this summer somewhere between new d uh dpi new gtp models i don't know where i don't know when again i've just i can tell you the answer to that i've heard this is going to happen where imsa is going to say hey great we're going to organize some tests for y'all where you can come together and do this at whichever tracks we go to but we're also going to want to have one or more p2 cars there to help Mm -hmm. determine pace and what the series would need to do going into next year Uh, i know that we're talking about 
P3 versus GTD, quote, stratification, I've heard that IMSA plans on doing a similar thing here with P2 and GTP to find out where the lap times fall for the new cars and if and what they need to do with the existing P2s. That'll continue for a few more years uh, to dial them up or down. I'm guessing it's going to have to be a dialing down. So, I mean, the answer on the tests uh, came in a briefing, which uh, I've actually got uh, something I need to send to you, MP, which is uh, uh, 10 minutes or not 15 those, minutes. Not those photos again. I told No, not you, those please. photos. With Simon Hodgson from uh, IMSA's technical team to talking about um, LMDH cars and GTP and what's coming and how they're going to manage that process. These two, uh, I think they're calling them sanctioned tests. One will be in the days following Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta, and then in early, early December, there's going to be a second two-day test at uh, Daytona, um, which are the tests I think we're talking about here. In addition to that, of course, the other change we've seen in recent days is that uh, the FI World Endurance Championship has now said that they will uh, welcome one-off uh, entries from LMDH cars this season, into the FI World Endurance Championship, something that wasn't the case before. That's been agreed by the FIA, which again will be about data gathering. It will be about understanding the task in hand. These will not be competing for points, remember, but uh, understanding the task in hand of balancing these two very different concepts, the LMH and the LMDH cars. They will come under the hypercar class banner in WEC. That same potential mix will come under the GTP um, banner in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. So uh, as for the kind of two seconds here, two seconds there, it's I think it's pretty simple. Uh, we could might just as well, to be blunt, look back at what happened the last time that WC was at Sebring when we had the LMP1s and they were quicker. Um, the reality here is it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off between the opportunity to draw in more manufacturer programs with the advantages those manufacturer programs bring in terms of activation of a championship in other words you know uh, putting in more uh, more efforts to market that championship on their uh, back and their products back uh, the depth of competition that uh, we should see as a result of more manufacturers and we hope privateer teams coming along with those cars against the ultimate performance so we're entering a brand new era. It's an era where the numbers in two regards are going to be important. That is the physical number of cars on the grid and the ability to manage the performance of those cars so that what you should have is equally close competition in the top class of prototype racing as we've currently seen and enjoyed in GTD and GTD Pro in the 2022 season across the first two races. If you like... GTD and GTD Pro and, and the kind of style of racing you're seeing there, which is basically, you know, um, tipping out. It's a bit like your Lego, isn't it? You tip out the box of Lego onto the carpet and uh, there it is all clustered up and until so you make it uh, fit kind of neatly together and it gets some kind of form to it. That's what we've had in GTD. That's what we should be getting with GTP in IMSA and with Hypercar in the WEC in years to come. I'm of the opinion that the first or second or third race in succession where we have cars going four wide into several turns on each lap and way deep into the race is the point at which people will stop worrying about that second and a half or two seconds of deficit and start thinking, isn't this awesome? Isn't this awesome? Why don't we, speaking of awesome, go to one last question on the IMSA side from Joshua Johnson. Mm-hmm. says, who do we contact at Porsche or Penske to request an interesting GTP livery and not just have it a ABWP, <laughs> and in brackets, that is another boring white Porsche. Who do we contact, Graham? Is there a, a, a hotline number, 1-800? I wish there was. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the, only, the, only, um, the only help I can give you here is it was the last time we had the – uh, tribute liveries at Le Mans on the GT Pro cars, which was the Rothmans car and the Pink Pig car, which, by the way, were absolutely awesome, as most of these tribute liveries have, have been. And I have a friend and colleague on the 
uh, marketing communication side at Porsche. We were having a conversation about how great that was. And I did pass into that conversation. It does make you wonder, doesn't it, where in maybe 40 years' time, which liveries from this era will be seen as being classic? And I doubt that any of them will. I think they've been, to be blunt, very corporate, extremely self-indulgent on the part of some of those people designing them. Uh, you know, liveries that can only be seen to their fullest extent when you put both cars together and view them from above. Terribly sorry, but that's the kind of marketing gimmick that someone should have basically said, go back and do it properly. Um, it looks great on a graphic, but and might look great in the single photo call you ever get them to, to run in that particular way, to, to be positioned in that way. But other than that, frankly, my view is pretty self-indulgent. Uh, I'll go along the lines of telling you right now that uh, I walked down the paddock at Sebring in the WEC paddock and uh, with a friend and colleague, and we're looking to where the changes have been made uh, for the two GT Pro cars this year. And when when the conversation goes literally like, oh, I can see what they've done there, that bit's white and grey and the other one's grey and white it doesn't take a genius to realize that we're edging towards the not remarkable. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, yeah, uh, I'm uninspired by it is the honest answer. I'd say the same to be blunt, uh, about our friend today, of Corsa and the Ferraris where they put out, uh, you know, an all singing, all dancing media, uh, release and associated materials talking about their brand new livery for the 51 and 52 cars. <sighs> I cover every race and I was struggling to look at the difference. Um, and I get it. You've got the iconic white, the iconic red. Uh, I'm looking for something a little bit more inspirational. <laughs> Excuse me. Vomit green. That's what I'm suggesting we go for. Uh, all right, Graham, we're going to move into your, as my father would say, bailiwick, uh, the good old FIA wackety whack. Asian Le Mans series, ELMS, and ACO, better known as WEC, okay. Aslam Elms, ACO. We're going to open with Lawrence Kwai. says, want to get your thoughts, Graham, on the Le Mans automatic mm -hmm. entries. Seems to cheapen the process when Ben Keating can transfer his very well-deserved automatic entry to Cooper McNeil, possibly the most overrated driver in IMSA for this year's 24 hours. Uh, it just doesn't seem right, especially when competitive teams with long history at Le Mans Racing Team Nederland, for example, were only given mm -hmm. reserve entries. Doesn't seem right. I got to admit, not so much on the Ben and Cooper angle, but it sure was strange seeing uh, the, the Nederland entry and seeing some very important and popular names parked uh, in P1 on the reserve list. Like, yeah, hey, I, really? I, yeah, well, let's deal with that one first. They, the, uh, Racing Team Netherlands, by the way, uh, withdrew their reserve entry on the yesterday the day before, so they're no longer on the reserve list. Uh, I think they were surprised. I think high-class racing were surprised. There's, of course, a common factor be between both of them, which is they're not racing in an ACO championship this year. They're racing in IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Was there a message being delivered there? Probably, I think is the honest answer, that uh, if you're not going to come and play with our train set, you're not going to come and uh, come to the birthday party at the end of it. Um, there, there have been some odd decisions made about the multi-car GT cars there. We'll wait and see whether or not every single one of those ends up kind of coming along. Um, look, we've, we've got two sanctioning bodies here who are working superbly well in some regards together, but there's no forgetting that they are in competition for a number of these teams. Uh, we've got Cetelo Racing, for instance, the Italian team um, doing the Endurance Cup races in IMSA this year. They told me at the end of Sebring they'll be back next year with the brand new Ferrari 296 GD3 in GTD, but thereafter will return to WC in 2024 uh, in, in the, what I presume by then will be called GT something. Um, uh, GT something could be actually a good name for the class. Yes. Um, 
Gigi something, there's another. Uh, brought to you first by hashtag twist. The new sixth cup. class in, uh, in IMSA. Yes, debuting in 2074. Uh, and the reason, so the reasons behind some of those teams going from WEC to IMSA uh, need to be, I think, better understood by those making these decisions. Chetlar's case, it's pretty simple. Uh, Roberto Lacourt uh, is launching uh, his company, their product range, its pharmaceuticals, um, into the U.S. marketplace. He's therefore spending a lot more of his time in the USA, and therefore it makes sense to do his racing there. That makes perfect sense to me and to everybody else. Um, in the case of some of the other guys, well, maybe in part it's experiential because why wouldn't you? There's some fantastic racetracks, some fantastic racing in North America. Um, it is, though, I think at, at times, a commercial decision from the sanctioning body back in Europe, in this case the ACO and and their proxies uh, who organize the championships, uh, LMEM. Um, do they need to consider why those teams are leaving behind an FIA World Championship and going to something which is not an FIA World Championship? I think they need to understand that better. Um, I, again, um, I'm never happy when something like a Le Mans entry the promise of one, the prospect of one, is used as a stick rather than a carrot. To my mind, it should be, uh, for the most part, the best, the most engaged um, teams, wherever they are in the world, that should come, and it should be a de facto World Cup, if you like. It's the World Cup final of endurance racing, and Daytona sits not very far behind it in that firmament. Um I think there should be a lot more carrot and a lot less stick. And in this instance, I tend to agree with you, Lawrence, that's a little bit too much stick. As far as the Ben Keating thing is concerned, that wasn't Ben handing over his entry. That was for a specific reason, which I'll tell you, uh, was Ben's uh, planned entry uh, with an LMP2 car uh, falling foul of other circumstances um, that entry being withdrawn and IMSA, because it's in their gift, uh, were able then to transfer an entry elsewhere. And perhaps the most surprising part of this is that WeatherTech Racing were not initially, it would appear, on the overall entry. Um, so that, I think, is the shocker. Nothing to do with Ben. Uh, ben simply for reason that the, the original um, uh, nominated driver for that car uh, was busy, I'm afraid, elsewhere, and busy elsewhere for reasons that were completely out of uh, Ben's control because the driver that, uh, that was transferred was Stephen Thomas. Stephen Thomas was the named driver for that initial entry, um, known, of course, in inter-circles for Winota Sports and latterly for PR1 Madison, but it would have been Stephen. Stephen was named on the entry. Stephen then received uh, an offer to go and do the full uh, WEC with Algar Pro Racing. That offer came as a result of the withdrawal of G-Drive Racing, the withdrawal of Danny Giviat from the WEC car. Um, and one of the provisos in the entry requirements is if you name that driver, that driver has to race at Le Mans. And having lost his primary driver, that entry was done. Um IMSA were then left with one of their entries. They had three this year to give uh, that they could then reallocate. They chose to reallocate it to a very valued customer, WeatherTech Racing. So less to do with Ben and, in fact, less to do with Cooper McNeil, uh, more to do with just um, the entry from Ben's team. Of course, Ben wouldn't have been in the car because he's in a TF Sport Aston Martin as a full-season entry. Um, and more, more, much more to do with... Um, a victim of circumstance and people wonder why they give up on sports car racing brother <laughs> there was no reason on earth why you should have had to have used that much time and that many words to explain the situation but you oh, have to to do seconds. it yeah, no but i'm just it, saying it you to, go to. what huh <laughs> 
dude wants to race a car. Can you race a car? Yes or no? Oh my God. Anyways, I mean, I wasn't fake snoring on you. I'm fake snoring on the topic of like, my gosh, this stuff is insane. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Let's go to something cheery. Er, yeah. Craig Johnson says, so Hendrick Motorsports trying to take a next gen cup car to Le Mans 2023. Should they reach out to Trans Am teams for help? Said, Hashtag me personally. I see this ending up uh, looking like a Trans Am car in the end. Anyways, um, I don't know why they need to reach out to a Trans Am team, knowing that uh, they have a IMSA prototype team uh, mm-hmm. that helped develop the next-gen cup car in Action Express Racing, being one of the key underpinnings of this, Craig. Um, the, I, You know, one thing that I read in all of the uh, Garage 56-related stuff uh, with this Camaro ZL1, one of the things somewhere from some official, I don't remember whether it was IMSA, ACO, uh, maybe Chevrolet, Hendrick, I don't know. But one official comment that I read was something about, well, of course, the this future Le Mans race isn't here, and they haven't put out the entry list yet for that because we still have to hold the current one first before we do that. So there's no guarantee I'm paraphrasing. We'll be on the entry list, but we sure hope we do. We hope we are. And I'm like, uh, I swear, Pierre Fion, the man who's in charge of the race and and might have some say in the entry list, Graham Goodwin, was at the freaking press conference posing for photos. Now, wouldn't that be hilarious? (laughs) 17th. Uh, reserve entry uh, goes to right. Wait a minute, isn't there only one for garage? Races? Yes, but uh, uh, yes, yeah, sixteen other cars will have to fall out. Like, could you imagine yeah. going for all this and Pierre going, eh? You know what? <laughs> we're we're gonna have a old. Uh, what are we gonna? Do? We're gonna get an old WR chassis, and uh, we're gonna Again. stick in the nineteen eighty eight. Uh, PRV turbo motor streamliner, and uh, we're gonna see if we can break the Molson record once again. <laughs> Screw you, Americans! It's gonna be paint. It's gonna be uh, the Tricolor, and uh, down with y'all. So, anyways, yeah, it, that, that, it's uh, there's a there's a balance, isn't there, between respecting the traditions and the rule book and common sense. The reality is, a NASCAR is going to run and race at the Le Mans 24 hours. That's going to happen unless something goes wrong with the clear development that's going to be needed to get that car to the point where it's in a performance window. And I think they, they are talking, I think, about something like GTM speed around a lap. I think I remember reading that somewhere in the brief. Um, so this is not going to be challenging for overall lead. Um, it's going to be something at a kind of safe and sustainable pace. But yeah, there's a balance between that and having an announcement that makes sense. In this case, look, the car will will start that race, no doubt whatsoever about it. I know Richard Cooper's asked, you know, can the term innovative <laughs> car be stretched any further? Uh, yeah, here's the thing: I get it, I understand all of that, um, but but I think there's a greater good here. This is about um, a much bigger picture. Uh, we, we talked about it a lot on the racing, uh, the racing family, the, uh, the spaces uh, podcast on the day this was actually announced. And I apologise, my wife just walked in behind me uh, whether or not she's actually got anything important to tell me. Or of course she has. Oh, the answer is no, she hasn't. As she, as she goes, just she loves me very much, and I love her right back. Oh. Um, I think this is unremittingly a very good thing. I think it marks another step forward in the. Very productive links between those responsible for um, endurance racing in Europe and globally and those responsible for endurance racing in North America. That can only produce good things in the future. We're going to want to see more of this in the future when we get beyond the initial growing pains for hypercar and GTP and into the questions about who should race at Daytona, who should race uh, at the Le Mans 24 hours if teams and manufacturers want to do one-offs. These are the moments that are going to make a difference um, when we get to those questions, not in 2023, because I think those questions have been answered, but 24, 25 and beyond. They're the important moments 
where these relationships have been built on doing things that are just different and awesome, actually. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not a massive NASCAR fan, but I want to see what this thing will do. I want to see what it looks like. I want to see what it sounds like. I want to see what cleverness that NASCAR um, and Hendrix Motorsport and Action Express and Chevrolet can put into this car. I want to see those things. And my strong suspicion is, MP, that we're going to see a level of interest in this effort that is not unlike what you and I witnessed in 2015 with the Nissan. Was it on pace an embarrassment? Yes, it was. Was it by far the car that most people standing trackside wanted to see and wanted to see what it could do? By a country mile, it was. Uh, Even though it was realistically never actually uh, in the running for the race. At some point, you've got to realise that what we're doing is fueling people's passions here. And I think doing something a bit different, um, doing it safely, doing it with a framework around it, doing it with everybody involved, knowing exactly what we're all trying to do together, is unremittingly a very good thing. I still harbour a uh, a dream of this press conference uh, going off and Pierre Fion not being included in it and him like bursting into the room, the doors swinging open. What the hell? What are you talking about? No, uh, <laughs> uh, never. Uh, why don't we go to our pal, Andrew Backer? Uh, but by the way, before we do, uh, I, I saw a piece of film today. I've not seen before also involved Pierre. I hadn't realized he was in that GT 40 that got the honor lap uh, with Jackie X at the wheel before the, uh, race began the uh, WC race began and um, you know we joke but he's a man of pa- some passion about this sport and he was clearly having the absolute time of his life in an iconic endurance race car with the original Mr. Le Mans at the wheel waving to fans enjoying himself thoroughly that's the spirit of Le Mans and that's the spirit that's going to carry this thing forward he's a good guy absolutely a good guy uh, Andrew says, how many smoky burnouts from the Lamar pit lane before the ACO pulls the uh, garage 56 cup car and how awesome will it be until then? Yeah. Do we uh, eliminate the no massive wheel spin during pit stops yeah. Uh, yeah. just for this? Um, uh, I think, I think we might see that car with a couple of drive throughs Let's put it that way. But, uh, <laughs> even, even that gives the opportunity for anybody to pit out to hear it roar again. Um, or to do burnouts during the drive-through. <laughs> I think it's. I just think it's going to be enormous fun. I think uh, you know, and it's it's been many years we've not been able to say that. I just think whoever came up with this um, as an idea, a deliverable idea, needs to get the Spirit of Le Mans Award because I think this is what it's all about. It's all about you know tens, hundreds of thousands of people clinging to the fences watching for their favorite car to come by and this is going to be one of them um i I, you know there's a lot of mileage literally um to to go with this and i think this is going to be one that keeps us talking as the details emerge of how the car is going to look the details emerge of who's going to drive it you know what how is this thing going to be packaged you know what's the livery going to be on the car it's going to be a, a car that an awful lot of people are talking about and it might even be mp that this is the only Chevrolet that's going to be at that race. Oh, you, uh, you little teaser, you. Uh, I have one other idea for this, by the way. I think, like we see with, granted, we no longer have open cockpit uh, cars competing at Le Mans, but like we've seen for many years with drivers' visors that have tear-offs, as we've seen more recently with multiple layers of tear-offs being applied to the windscreens of the car, I think Hendrick and Chevrolet need to go the same route, but with wraps on the car and come up with 10 iconic Chevrolet NASCAR liveries dating back to 1950, whatever. And since this is garage 56, it's competing against itself. There's no true, you know, uh, achievement to be done in the race beyond finishing. I want to see them peel back uh, rap after rap to go to <laughs> iconic liveries 
from NASCAR uh, with various Chevy products throughout the years. And so it might take a few minutes or I don't know how. I, I think we're great. I think, by the right? way, the, the one thing I'm going to correct people on, because there's been a lot of speculation about who might drive this car. We did a bit of that ourselves, didn't we? But everybody's forgotten the blindingly obvious one, Will Ferrell. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, that, I think we, we might, if we can get a second cup car entered, we could indeed have 24 hours of shake and bake. So that would be amazing. Uh, Daniel Summersgill, the fine man who puts together our questions each week says, and this is a, a classic Summersgill question, deep, deep dive. He's a deep man. With He's the deep uh, man. recent news of Hendrick Motorsports running an NASCAR's garage 56 entry at Lamar Graham. Any news on the Vision Automotive 1789 biomethane, quote, last year's poop hypercar yep. that was rumored to be considering a garage 56 entry for 2023 a couple of years ago? I think, uh, for those who don't know, this was indeed biomethane fueled by the human waste products um, deposited, if we can put it that way, at Le Mans the previous year. Um, it's a shitty idea. Um, yeah, the project went to shit as well. Yeah, Can yeah. you imagine, you know, the plan they had to install a, a giant uh, shitter, a giant porta potty atop the garage so yeah. uh, fans could actively fuel the car? All right, Skid we're going way everywhere. too far. We're going way too far here. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> it was, so. remember, yeah, it's, it's got to be said, Le Mans was the first place where wipers were actually used for the first time. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I suspect, uh, without any prior knowledge of this, that this is one of those programs that's been delayed slash damaged by COVID. Can we um, throw in a, a rarely used hashtag, I'm coming from a place of zero knowledge? Yes. Those are my favorite. Yes, favorites. I think we should. Yes. Um, the, the Vision organization is still very active. They've been out there again with another of their kind of concept ideas fairly recently. But... Um, I'm aware that there are a number of Garage 56 uh, projects almost literally in the works. But as we've seen numerous times before, uh, it does take something to get these things over the line. And this has not been uh, an era that's been designed to be friendly to those kinds of cutting-edge technologies. My guess would be that if you were looking for what we might see in 2024 – um, hydrogen might well feature in that. I think that we're on that that kind of timeline right now. That's what I think you should be looking for next. Uh, the biomethane car, I think, I think it's been flushed. Oh boy! You know that was just a turd of a question there, Summers Gill. I got to tell you, uh, you know, we've got about 10 minutes left, brother. Why don't we just do Graham Goodwin pick and choose, grab what you want, okay. answer what you want. Let's have a quick crack at the, uh, the question about the early entries to LMDH. We mentioned this a little earlier. Uh, Sean Crockett said, do you think any teams will take up the WC's offer to run LMDHs in one-off races? How will the BOP work? Uh, Evan V, how realistic is it that they'll enter at least one car this WC season? I think the fact of the matter is, they've been given that opportunity. And I think Porsche is probably the only one that would be in a, in a situation where they might be able to do it. I'm not thinking beyond Monza. I can't believe that Porsche would want to up sticks and support that car in Fuji. Maybe Bahrain, that, that is an outside possibility. Um, but I think if they're where they need to be, there's almost a question, why wouldn't they? Uh, as for how would they manage the BOP, what would the BOP be? It would be, I think, they'd, they'd, they'd almost certainly ask them to test first um, at that same track to get uh, a look at the car. They're not going to want this to be a spoiler uh, for a world championship fight between the teams that are full season. Um, so my guess would be they'd give it uh, a not generous balance of performance in its first running. Um, but certainly not a completely uncompetitive balance performance. They're already working, remember, with the manufacturers, and I think they've got a reasonable understanding of what will need to be done uh, with these cars. They are very much dialed in to the testing that's been seen so far. That much was clear from the briefing we had um, in uh, Sebring from IMSA and from the FI World Endurance Championships technical people. So how realistic? 
I think a reasonable expectation that this is an offer that might be seen uh, very positively from Porsche. I hope from others, but I suspect they're the only ones that will be able to, to make uh, the Monza race. Maybe, maybe Barca, maybe Bahrain, but I'm not sure I'd want to um, be the guy that suggested that was a great idea to support it from that level of distance. Uh, looking beyond that, Stuart Hartz is asking, does the ACO FI's decision to allow pre-homologation and MDHs into FIWC open the door for another one-off or part season entries, i.e. the van wall, naming rights issues aside, and current LMH and MDH projects, so long as it's backed up by long-term commitment to the series? The the answer, I think, is it does specifically mention in the um, in the the change to regulations LMDH. I'll answer just this on the van wall, the Bicolis built car. Uh, Stuart, you mentioned that just in in uh, in brackets, naming issues, naming rights issues aside. I'll be blunt. I think that's the only issue. I think that's the issue is that um, there is a belief that there's a risk that that could end legally, um, and the WEC, ACO, LMEM don't want any part of anybody else's legal fight. And if you allow a manufacturer to enter what is a manufacturer's world championship um, with an, a, a right, a name to which they don't uh, own the rights without challenge, that opens you up to be part of a potentially lengthy, potentially expensive legal case. Why would you do that? Um, so I think the answer here, quite aside from all the covering fire around what's going on with this car, is it ready? Is that a you know, fully race ready car etc etc don't know is the straight answer the issue is the name it's the ownership of the name it's the potential challenge to the ownership of that name and it's the potential legal difficulties that result from uh that position and i will say this and i'll say it clearly i'm not here to say that they're wrong i think they're completely correct this is a question about whether or not there is a entirely legal ownership to the rights of the uh, manufactured to that car, uh, then they are correct to be risk averse right now. Um, so that's something that Colin Collis and his team need to satisfy the powers that be that they are absolutely entitled to use the name they've chosen for that car. Uh, and there's, there's plenty, by the way, online, both on Racer and DSC, that explains the background to this as to why that is in question. Uh, but that's it. So uh, the answer, by the way, is no, uh, no LMH cars, because that's not included in the, the the waiver, if you like, that's been given. And Stuart, with regret, I'm afraid the, the naming rights issue aside, but under, underserves the, um, the issue at hand, which is the issue at hand. No one wants to end up in court. Right. Uh, final one is Sean Crockett, by the way, who asked about any more news on the Aston Martin and the Valkyrie. Uh, well, we saw the Valkyrie, what's known the 002, the AMR Pro car, uh, did some laps in Bahrain uh, in support of the uh, the opening uh, Formula One uh, race of the season there. I, I'm going to open it out to you here, MP. Have you heard word one of there being an engine and aero program for that car in the FI World Endurance Championship? I did, but we would be referring to the Week in Sports Cars episodes from a couple years ago. Yeah, so, so the reality is th those those statements made both on and off the record by Laurent Stroll talking about the potential for that car being at Le Mans next year, I think are fanciful at best. Uh, that is a 1,000 horsepower plus car uh, that we're expected to believe might be a realistic entry for next season's FI World Endurance Championship. There is no sign of a program to achieve that whatsoever. Uh, that would mean effectively either a massively dialed down engine or a replacement engine, and it would mean a significantly less ambitious uh, error package than the car is currently carrying. It is running effectively without restriction, without regulation, um, and you know. We remember the, uh, the the famous press releases that annoyed endurance racing fans so very much, talking about how quickly that car could get around the Le Mans circuit when there was a Le Mans program had been pulled. Um, I'm not expecting that to be a 2023 entry. If I'm wrong, trust me, I'll be utterly delighted. 
then we've got a few questions here quickly. How long have we got, P? A uh, couple minutes, if you want. Okay, I'll run through them quickly. The not a thousand miles of Sebring, Emma Beresford, is the BOP wrong in hypercar, or is it just Sebring? Um, Nikolai uh, B saying, why did the WC use a separate pet complex, given they still have to do it US style going over the wall? Um, and uh, Kurt Pose says, talking about uh, Josh Pearson starts. Um, Josh, not a super bronze, he's a silver uh, because of his age. Uh, he, I think, could be a very interesting young man to keep an eye on as things progress here. Uh, I think he's got speed still to find in those cars, uh, but his level of maturity uh, in behind the wheel and in traffic, I think, has been admirable, and his performance on camera, uh, frankly, is stunning for a 16-year-old. So let's keep an eye um, and watch how he deals with the pressure uh, mounting of a world championship challenge. Uh, the yeah, I, was, pick uh, I was just going to add a quick little thing to that, and this sure. is not meant to be a, a negative, but yeah, the the hype, the hype train around Josh. I wish there wasn't as much at this early stage of his career. Yeah, uh, and obviously he's had immense success already, so that's phenomenal. But the let's blow this out of proportion uh, yeah. effort I think that's where there needs to be a little bit of tempering there's one main reason I say that you say the still needs to find speed that's the part that is usually the opposite issue usually when you've got a young driver like Josh 16 17 whatever they're usually outrageously fast and having to be slowed down when you have someone like Josh who keeps getting faster and is finding increments of speed that's fantastic but it's also a bit strange i would say because having been plugged into this is speaking about the open wheel side of racing but uh, what we have in america here the road to indy this ladder system of junior open wheel uh the rockets that are going to be an indy car you see them at the bottom level you see them at the introductory level, USF 2000. Uh, they don't get to the middle tier, the top tier, and then out of nowhere say, whoa, I'm ready to be a big star. That speed, that outrageous speed, is pretty much always demonstrated uh, on that introductory level and then honed and improved uh, until they become that star in the, uh, the top category. Josh is a little bit of a outlier here where he's had great success, but I think some folks might be applying. Well, you know, it's immense speed and everything else that is facilitating all of that. Uh, there's a little ways to go here yet. And I, I hope he gets there, but let's not say we have yeah. the second coming of, I don't know, pick a lot of drivers, uh, uh, Rene Rast or Richard Westbrook, uh, so on and so forth. Like he's going to get there, but, he still actually has a fair amount uh, of development to go at 16. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, absolutely. Um, going, spooling back to it's Edward and Emma Beresford. I do apologize. I just name checked Emma. Is the BOP wrong in hypercar? No, I think is the answer. It does it need a tweak here and there. Yeah, probably. But I think we had probably the best hypercar race so far at uh, Sebring. Hypercar is not developed to allow one team to utterly dominate. It's developed to be a BOP formula. And what we saw was the the balance, if you like, between the pretty blinding speed that the Alpine was able to uh, deploy, but balanced somewhat by the fact that the car is less efficient in terms of its ability to squeeze out the stint times, I think they did a reasonably good job. Could it, does it need some fine-tuning? Yeah, yeah, it does. But I don't think it was completely outrageous. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that um, Toyota didn't have a shinily brilliant uh, race themselves. One car written off in that horrific shunt for Pichito Lopez, but the second car still beat the Glickenhaus. So the reality here is, did it look a little bit one-sided to the Alpine? yes. But I'm sure it was seemed just exactly as one-sided last year when the Alpine, to be blunt, was dealt a uh, balanced performance that rendered it pretty uncompetitive over six or eight hours. So this is supposed to work out, by the way. If you can for every race, great. But if not, over 
a full championship season. And again, we'll wait and see when we get to Le Mans just how competitive the Tota looks uh, at that stage with whatever it's dealt. Uh, but this is a game that is played over long periods of time, not just in terms of the races, but the year across which we compete. So there is a little bit of that. And Nicola, you asked about the separate pit complex. It is simply about the pit uh, equipment being set up for the week for the Intertech WeatherTech uh, Sports Car Championship in the traditional pit lane. There's a similar um, level of gubbins that's required for the WEC teams. They are not necessarily compatible. And there's uh, there's also the question of the, the the sheer length of that paddock. It's three quarters of a mile long. Trust me, I walked it enough times in Sebring Week. And uh, I think the solution they've come up with, with the WC pit lane, is very neat indeed. Um, the uh, Yes, it's a bit of a hybrid, if you like, between the US style over the wall with the paddock um, awnings, tents facing the opposite direction. But as, uh, as a spectator experience, I think it works pretty well. I think the teams quite like it, um, you know, but... The, the main reason why we've got those two separate facilities is its space. Otherwise, you'd have to de-rig everything between sessions, and that's simply not practical to do in what's already an extremely busy week. Um, I think that's as much as we're going to have time for at the moment. I'll just very quickly deal with Will James here, uh, who asks, well, it's pretty much certain there won't be GT Pro in WEC next season. What do you think with a few privateers and Corvettes? We could see one final hurrah among 2023 for the class. I've read the same reports I think that you've seen, uh, which I think is asking for something uh, to be not be denied or even be confirmed that there's no intention of actually happening. It's the same as it always was. If four cars are committed for a full WC season, they will consider it. The reality is that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because we know that Porsche won't do that. We know that Ferrari won't do that. Um, would Corvette commit two cars to a WEC season? I strongly doubt it. And we know that we've already had attempts to uh, to put in place uh, pro cars for uh, Aston Martin that failed this year. I think it's even less likely next year. So the reality is, uh, whilst it makes a decent headline on a website, the reality is ain't going to happen. And it ain't going to happen because the two factories that can make it happen are going to be rather more concerned with their factory hypercar programs next season. Graham Goodwin, I need you to take a deep breath. I need you to <gasps> massage your temples here briefly. Again. I need you to extend your hands, place your thumb and your index finger together and give me a woo and take us home. Let's take you home. And thanks for bearing with us in what's been a busy couple of weeks in the uh, during Sebring and in its immediate aftermath. Thanks to Daniel Summersgill for putting the questions uh, together again. And thanks to all of those of you that sent them in and those that we managed to get to and to those we didn't this week. Uh, we're going to try to keep this in a rather more orderly time frame as we move things forward. Thanks, as always, to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, and to torontomotorsports.com and thanks by the way for being so hospitable torontomotorsports.com when I popped along and said hello to yourselves and Roger Warwick at Sebring thanks to you of course uh, MP for making the time in a very busy uh, life too and thanks to the weather for playing a, a part and uh, keeping it uh, still light as I'm looking out the window here this has been the Week in Sports Cars from Marshall Pruitt's Podcast Network and we'll see you next week <laughs> <laughs>